Tonight we are in Ephesians, looking at just one verse, and that is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, as we are in this passage that is emphasizing the transformation that is to take place in the life of the believer, that we no longer live as we formerly lived before we came to know Christ. So the introduction, the very essence of the Christian life is one of giving as opposed to taking. Jesus taught that to give is more blessed than uh, to take. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it reads, In all things I have spoken to you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you notice the context, it is, it's in a matter of helping the weak and realizing that it is a greater blessing to be able to give than it is to receive. We're also taught in the book of Ephesians to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, it reads, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Giving himself up, of course, refers ultimately to his death on the cross, but he was willing to give everything in order for our benefit, we who were needy, we who were dead in our trespasses and sin, we who could not provide for our own righteousness, that we were unable to meet the great debt that was incurred through our sin, Jesus Christ gave himself in order to bring about that salvation. Jesus is the supreme example of one who gave supremely for the benefit of others. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, which in the context, by the way, is a passage that is talking about giving and a motivation for giving. Then it uses the example of Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's talking about all that the Son of God gave up in order to become the incarnate man, leaving heaven, leaving the glory, leaving the presence of God, uh, leaving all the riches, if you will, of heaven in order to come to this earth, in order that we might share in that blessedness of being with God forever and ever and all the joys and delights, the heavenly blessings that are spoken of in Ephesians chapter 1. So Christ limited himself and his glory in order that we might be able to partake in that glory. So in that sense, he who was rich for our sakes became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Well, tonight we are looking at a passage that deals with stealing. And stealing is the epitome of selfishly taking from others and is a stark contrast to giving. You, you can't get much more antithetical than that of stealing as opposed to giving. Uh, we are to be concerned about the well-being of others, not harming or defrauding them. So this evening we examine the transforming change 
That is to take place in the life of the believer as he or she no longer takes, but rather gives. Key verse is Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. So we begin by looking at this negative command, the way that we're no longer to live, and it's described in verse 28 as saying, let the thief no longer steal. Once again, stealing is viewed as typical of the old way of life before we came to Christ. As we've been working through this passage, we've seen our, our talk, uh, we have seen other characteristics of our actions as typified by those who do not know Christ. There's to be a change once we have come to know Christ, and the way in which we're to change in this instance is by no longer stealing. The scripture is just filled with passages that talk about stealing, and I'm not going to, by any means, look at them all, but I would point out to you Mark chapter 10, verse 19, and uh, it's in the passage, it's uh, associated with the rich young ruler. And it says in Mark chapter 10, verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. However, knowing the commandments and doing them are quite a different matter. Romans 2.21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? So here is this exhortation to examine ourselves, and we who speak against stealing, do we in fact steal? Do we in fact defraud one another? And we might easily dismiss that thought and say, no, of course, we wouldn't do that. But uh, maybe we need to think about it a little more carefully. Number one, it must be remembered that when we defraud or take from others, what does not belong to, to them is, uh, can be done in a myriad of ways. In a myriad of ways. It's not limited to robbing a bank or breaking and entering into a home. You know, it's easy to dismiss stealing if you, if you think of it in terms of, you know, we haven't, as I said, knocked off a bank or walked into Turkey Hill by gunpoint and have emptied a cash register, but yet, do we in fact defraud others? Do we in fact take things that, that don't belong to us? Do we lie about the age of our children so that we can get a discount for them being under the age of 12 when they're actually 13? Uh, do we go about... Do, do we mishandle copyright laws? Do we copy material that isn't right? Do we buy booted you know, CDs and, and movies and all kinds of things? There's so many different ways in which it's possible to defraud. See, stealing can be prompted by many, many different motivations. One of them, of course, is Severe poverty. In Proverbs 30, verse 8, it reads, Remove far from me falsehood and lying, giving me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God, bringing dishonor to him. 
It is not excusable, but it is at least understandable why someone who is in dire straits would resort to stealing. Uh, we can get our mind around that, I believe, uh, understanding how someone would be tempted uh, if uh, they don't have uh, the wherewithal to be able to provide for their family, if, if their children are going hungry, etc., uh, for someone to shoplift, for uh, someone to uh, take some groceries. While, as I say, it's not excusable, at least is understandable. We, we get that. However, it is not simply the poor who steal. Even the rich are tempted to steal. And we ask the question, but why? But why? No matter how much they have, it's not enough. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 reads, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. A, a love for money, that which money can procure, that which it can buy, uh, that which it is able to do for us. Ecclesiastes 5.10 reads, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. So here is a, another motivation. But notice it's not poverty, it's a dissatisfaction. It's simply not being content with what God has provided for us. The scripture says that godliness with contentment is great gain. That there is a, an awareness of how richly blessed we are when we are content, when we recognize God's goodness in providing for us. But it is very easy to become discontented and being dissatisfied with God's provision. Bernie Madoff, many are familiar with him, was an American fraudster and financier who ran the largest Ponzi scheme in history, worth about $64.8 billion, that Ponzi scheme. He defrauded investors of $65 billion over 15 years. Prior to his arrest, Madoff's net worth was approximately $17 billion. I want you to try to get your head around that one. Bernie Madoff was worth $17 billion, B, billion dollars. Why would a man who was worth $17 billion risk his reputation, his standing in the community, and everything he held dear to steal money. How does that make any sense? It is just pure greed. It is just pure selfishness. Perhaps it's arrogance, wanting to demonstrate his prowess, his acumen, his ability to defraud and get away with it. Maybe it was an issue of pride, for it says that the love of money is the root of all evil. There are all kinds of motivations that could perhaps contribute to his Ponzi scheme. But D, the absurdity of Madoff's stealing is the primary reason that he went so long without being caught. 
There were a lot of red flags over the 15 years that he ran this Ponzi scheme to make people think that everything wasn't on the up and up. But he kept getting away with it, and he kept being audited by the SEC, and there was just this underlying thought that it's unthinkable that this man, who was worth $17 billion, is running a Ponzi scheme. Why would he do it? Why would he do it? Well, number two, the scriptures teaches, the scripture teaches us that we're to have a, a different mindset concerning wealth. And that is that we should focus not on what we don't have, but rather we are to focus upon what we do have. Second Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 9. Here's that verse I referred to, and now we see more of a context. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he is rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. He's talking about giving now and giving to the poor. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, that is to put aside monies for an offering that was to be taken, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have done. So give what you intended to give, and now verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. The readiness, the willingness, is motivated not by what we don't have, but what we do have. The world is all about trying to make us discontent, to be less than satisfied with what God has provided us. And we're bombarded with commercials that are telling us that we need this particular product. And we are going to miss out on life if we don't have the, the latest and the greatest. If we don't have the tenth version of a particular app, and it's got the ninth and the eighth or the, or the particular game, it's, it's not up to snuff. It's not up to, to power. It's less than what we would want. Discontentment runs wild. And according to the scripture, it begins with people meditating upon what they don't have as opposed to what they do have. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the evil one coming to uh, Eve and tempting her with eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there is this recognition on Eve's part who says, we are able to eat from every tree of the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that we eat uh, thereof, we will die. The evil one says, you won't die, you won't die. Has God said, is that, is that really what God has, has revealed? And then blatantly, 
you won't die. And then the scripture says, and she looked at the tree and saw that it was pleasant, saw that it was good. She began to meditate not on all the trees of the garden that she could eat of. Instead, the focused attention was on the one tree that she could not eat of. And that became the obsession, to eat of the one tree that was being denied her. Uh, there's a lot of danger in window shopping of just paging through, you know, uh, books, stopping at used car lots, walking around, just looking at what you don't have. It can breed discontent. And discontent, if left unchecked, can lead to taking improper means to obtain what we don't have. Number four, in our text, the emphasis appears that stealing is motivated by an unwillingness to work. This is one aspect of laziness. Thus, stealing is the easy way out. It is a way to obtain without working to put forth personal effort. Our culture is all about enjoying life and not wanting to work hard to take responsibility for difficult challenges. So, now we have the positive command, rather than to steal, we should be prepared to work hard. Verse 28, let not the thief, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Let him labor. Each person is to work as opposed to living off of others. We are to be willing to do toilsome, tedious work. That word for labor is uh, a sweaty tiresome, wearisome labor. It's hard toil. Not that everyone has to be engaged in a very rigorous kind of work that causes you to, to sweat and perspire, but we shouldn't put our nose up in the air against such labor. It shouldn't be deemed as beneath us. It shouldn't be that which we are unwilling to do if that is the way in which God ordains that he is going to provide for us. Number two, as Christians, our goal should not be to do nothing and just take life easy. That is not what ought to motivate us. That should not be our goal that we get to the place where, you know, we just sit back and enjoy life and do no work any longer. Three, many are looking forward to retirement with a view of just doing what one enjoys. In this instance, laboring is to be contrasted with a life of ease. The world's concept of the good life is to live a life of ease. However, each person is responsible for taking care of their own needs. We're not to live off of the hard work of others while doing nothing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says this, For even when we were with you, 
we would give you the commandment, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that there are some among you, you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in Lord Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, there are many reasons why people are poor, and you know this is not a long discussion about uh, social ethics and the responsibilities that we have uh, in uh, all of those regards, but it is teaching us that as Christians, we need to be careful that we don't develop a mentality that, that says, it's everybody else's responsibility to take care of me. We have the responsibilities of taking care of ourselves, of meeting our own needs, as long as we're fit and capable and able and all of the disclaimers that go along with that statement. We shouldn't be seeking to live off of others and depriving them. Rather, B, we're to busy ourselves with doing something that's useful. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Now these words, doing honest work with his own hands. To do what is honest is more than simply doing that which is legal. It has the connotation of doing that which is useful or helpful to others. Thus, we are not to waste our lives in meaningless pursuits and activities. One can make a living at doing almost anything, but it may not prosper or help others. You can make a living, I suppose, at being a professor, professional gambler, but it doesn't add much to the enrichment of our society or our culture or anyone else. It's just a simple way of people trying to take from others what uh, they have without a great deal of effort or work. Five, there's a difference between an occupation and a vocation. Hey, it's not necessarily the type of work, but the attitude towards work that makes the difference. An occupation is that which simply occupies your time. That's the way that some people view work. I'm putting in my time, punching the clock, getting it over with. And they see no value in it, they see no benefit in it other than the check that they are receiving. They take no pride in it, they get no sense of worth from it. <laughs> they are just occupying their time so that eventually they can be free from work and then do those things that they enjoy and want to do. A vocation is a calling. It is the use of one's time that is in keeping with a sense of duty before God. Uh, a calling. Many times we associate certain kinds of work with a calling. One of them, most notably, is the pastorate. We talk about pastors being called to the ministry, seeing this as a, a duty, a responsibility that's to be filled before God. But the reformers understood the concept of the priesthood of the believers. And one of the aspects of the priesthood of the believers is not simply that we are all serving God, but there was 
a desire to break down the demarcation between that which is secular and that which is spiritual. And there was to be an understanding that all of life is to be spiritual. All of work was intended to be spiritual. Whether you were preaching from the pulpit or whether you were a blacksmith chewing a horse, it was to take on a sense of here is a way in which I can serve God. Here is the way in which I can use my gifts, my abilities, my talents that God has granted me to bring him glory by the excellency with which I do my work and be a benefit to my neighbor in being able to uh, shoe their horse, whatever the case may be. That's very much in keeping with, the, with this passage in the sense that we are to, to realize that our work is to be viewed as a calling, a way to serve God and to serve others. This understanding has been given birth to what is known as the Christian work ethic. And uh, I have this quote from Wikipedia that says this, the Protestant work ethic, also known as the Calvinist work ethic or the Puritan work ethic, is a work ethic concept in theology, sociology, economics, and history, which emphasizes the diligent discipline and frugality are a result of a person's subscription to the values espoused by the Protestant faith, particularly Calvinism. For Protestants, salvation was a gift from God. This is the Protestant distinction of sola, sola uh, gratia, mean only grace. In light of salvation being a gift of grace, Protestants viewed work as a stewardship given to them. Thus, Protestants were not working in order to achieve salvation, but viewed work as the means by which they could be a blessing to others. Hard work and frugality were thought to be two important applications of being a steward of what God had given them. Protestants were thus attracted to these qualities and supposed to strive in reaching them, end quote. Again, tonight is not the uh, time to have a, a great discourse on what the scripture has to teach about labor, but let me just remind you that Adam and Eve were to keep the garden, they were to till it, they were to labor in the garden before the fall. Labor is not a consequence of the fall. The frustration of labor, the sweat of the brow, the weeds that were to materialize, the frustrations of labor are a result of the fall, but not labor itself, but not labor itself. That is actually viewed as a blessing of God. As we labor, as we work, we become imitators of God, who himself creates, who himself works, and as we've seen in the example of Jesus, who himself gives. But thirdly, let's look at the motivation of the command to work hard. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And now notice the reason. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Notice how the bar is being raised. Our work is to be more than just about earning a living or meeting our needs. 
And we saw that some are even unwilling to do that. Some are unwilling to, to work hard in order to provide for themselves, and they just want other people to provide for them. Well, we should provide for ourselves, but our motivation is much higher than that. Secondly, our work is even more than simply doing something that is useful or beneficial. We talked about that. Honest labor. Our labor should be more than just a way of being able to supply needs. You know, and, and those needs can be understood in, in, in a myriad of ways. Uh, you know, driving truck, making deliveries. <laughs> We're finding out right now how difficult it is with the whole supply chain and, and the fact that you can't get goods and so on, that people who, who make deliveries really provide a service. They're a benefit to us. There are many, many different ways in which we can give our time and effort that benefit others. But this has raised it still another notch. The, the bar now rises even higher from first meeting our own needs to doing something that's beneficial and helpful to others. Now it's this dimension of so that we have something to share that we can share the fruits of our labors with others. Verse 28. So we may have something to share. D were to be concerned about the poor and needy. With anyone in need, there are a host of reasons why a person can be legitimately in need. Why they are incapable of being able to provide for themselves, whether that be physical limitations, mental limitations, and you can go on and on and on. There are many legitimate reasons. And we should not be hard-hearted or calloused or insensitive to those who are truly in need and not only should we be sympathetic or even empathetic, but we actually ought to take steps to relieve that need and to be helpful. Two, again, our goal is not to share, uh, excuse me, is not to save just so that we can sit back and enjoy life. There's a, a striking passage in Ezekiel in which Israel is compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And euphemistically, God calls Jerusalem Sodom, calls them Gomorrah, for they had gotten to the place where in the mind of God there was no difference between them and then Sodom. How deplorable, how far God's people can go. And as you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, I think there are certain sins that, that come to mind. And that's why I, I find Ezekiel so, so striking. For notice with me under number two, Ezekiel 4, 1649. Behold, 
This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. And if you're not familiar with this passage, it might surprise you. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. Sodom was proud, had an excess of food, more food than what they knew what to do with, and prosperous ease, which meant that they didn't even have to work. They were so well off that they became idle. And in their idleness, it created all kinds of sinful activity and pursuits. But they had prosperous ease. Number three, we should save in order to have resources with which to help others. Back to Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She had and her daughters pride, excess of food, prosperous ease. And now notice this, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Did not aid the poor and the needy. They were insensitive to the poor and to the needy. They didn't care about the poor and the needy that were among them, even though they were incredibly prosperous. Even though they had great ease. They turned their attention away from those that were less fortunate, which only led to more sinful practice, more selfishness, more abominations, more harming others rather than being a benefit to others. You know the whole story of the angels that are sent to Sodom and and the way in which the men of the city came and wanted to, to harm those, those individuals. And it traces it back to this desire for ease, which is motivated by selfishness. Selfishness. Just thinking about our own pleasures, just thinking about our own wants, just thinking about what makes us happy and from time to time discontent because somebody has something I don't have and I want it too and fail to realize all that I do have that others don't. But I'm consumed with what I don't have as opposed to consumed with what others don't have. Lastly, Robin Hood is not the ideal role model. To steal from the rich to give to the poor is not acceptable to God either. We're not just talking about redistribution of wealth here, nor is this a statement against capitalism. The scripture does not teach that there must be a redistribution of wealth so that everyone is equal in their possessions. We should not be forced to share with others. But we should want to share with others to their benefit and to the glory of God. That's the motivation. It should be out of our love for God 
and for our love for our neighbor. For the first commandment is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach what it means to love your neighbor as the question was asked, who is my neighbor? And so the parable of the Good Samaritan is given to answer that question. And so, number four, we're to work in order to be able to help provide for the poor. Conclusion. We're to be part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So when you think of this admonition to no longer steal, let's go a bit deeper and realize that at the very heart of this is that we're to no longer be selfish. We should no longer just want to be takers, wanting to have our needs met all the time, focusing on what we don't have. But we ought to be givers. Givers. Even as Christ gave himself, even as Christ, who was rich, became poor, so that we who were poor become rich. Let us view all that God has blessed us with as a means of not just enjoying all that we have, but using what we have as a resource to be able to help and benefit others as well. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and all that you have provided us with. And Lord, guard our hearts that we do not become discontent. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul that we have learned in all things to be content, whether we abound or whether we suffer need, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Lord, help us to trust in your provision. Help us to joy in that which you have provided us with. And Lord, rather than looking with longing at what others have, may we look with compassion upon others that don't have. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.